Leftovers Season 2, Episode 9, 10, 13 is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler, and knock, knock, who's there? It's a pencil, a broken pencil. It's a broken Antonio. Yeah, Broken Antonio Pizarro. He's pointless. He's pointless. What's up, Josh? How you doing? I'm doing good, Antonio. I'm doing better than you, it sounds like. Yeah, I've got a little blues man voice going on right now. Got a little blues man voice going on. It's a little got bit the of a, blues so bad. A little blue man group happening over here on the Leftovers podcast, recording a little bit later than we wanted to due to uh, due to Antonio's sickness, due to me having a day yesterday. Mm, uh, sorry about your day, buddy. That's okay. That's okay. Had, it, had a, is, it is 1013 right now, is it not? It is 1013 a.m. on a Tuesday right now as we are recording this podcast. So even though things got in the way yesterday, this feels kind of, uh, it feels like fate that we're recording right now. It really does. It's all about the numbers. It's all about the numbers. The numbers are good right now. Uh, and the numbers are crazy on posterrecaps.com. Just looking at posterrecaps.com, we, we posted a questions page for this week's episode of The Leftovers. And as of this recording, 69 comments on the board. That's a pretty solid number. The number is great. <laughs> yeah, we're happy with that amount of comments. That's it's, it's I mean, crazy. And there's some really great comments, too, not only about this episode, but about last week's episode and people ruminating on various characters, the season as a whole. Uh, it really adds to the conversation. It really influences kind of a lot of uh, how Josh and I look at things and how we what we talk about, well, the things that you guys want to hear, want to know uh, what you've said. So thankful for those comments. Keep them coming. Uh, after this podcast is posted, would love to hear more. So thank you very much again. Absolutely, totally, totally. Uh, it's been it's been great, and I think that hopefully a lot of this is you know generated by people who are just coming to the show now. Uh, Antonio and I, if you missed this, I, I'm sorry that you missed this because I thought this was really good. Antonio and I, we got together last week after International Assassin and recorded a bonus leftovers podcast that was designed for <laughs> people who'd never seen the show before, people who have heard about the leftovers, keep hearing the buzz about the leftovers season two and how great it is, and we decided, you know what, let's push those people over the fence if we can or into the well as it into were. the well yes. into the well and hopefully it worked it seemed like we got a really good response on that podcast i know a bunch of people who are regular listeners of podcasts on post show recaps and the rob has a podcast planet um a lot of those people that are regular names but hadn't been regular names popping up in the leftover sphere started tweeting at antonio and myself about watching the show and binging the show and a bunch of those people are caught up so if you're a new listener if you're just coming along for the ride now welcome aboard uh it's good it's going to be a fun ride as we talk about this penultimate episode of season two and, of course, the finale coming up really, really soon. Um, it's great. It's great to have new voices in the conversation. So very happy. As far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished. Yeah. Don't you mean pencil ultimate? Uh, yes. Or broken pencil ultimate, as <laughs> the case may be. Pen- broken pencil ultimate episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah no one No one told us they didn't like uh, – they, they, they caught up and they were very angry at us for recommending the show. So as far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished in that front. Yeah. No. Everyone who's been catching up, I haven't seen a lot of like, eh, meh. And, you know, you guys really <laughs> blew that out of proportion. I've been this hearing a lot of that was really good. Uh, yeah, this is not a meh show. No. It's, it's, not. A, it's, it's either you, you're not liking it, you hate it, you're angry about it, or you're all in. Yeah, it's not a meh show, but it's a Meg show this week. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. This was the Meg show. Liv Tyler, she is back. And one of the things that we were wondering once it seemed like Kevin had finally unstuck himself from Patty. Patty may or may not be gone for good after International Assassins. Like, well, what's, what's going to fill the void? There, because and Dad was such a presence on this show. How are we going to possibly fill that void? And in comes ten thirteen. In comes Liv Tyler as Meg Abbott, reborn as this truly psychotic villain. Uh, yikes! Yikes! Yeah. This was crazy. This was a really, really powerful performance from Liv Tyler. 
Yeah, it was. And I mean, you, I think, were, were sort of surprised by that. I know I was surprised by it. This is not typically the role that Liv Tyler is given or asked to play. And it, it from here on out, I feel like the sky's the limit. I feel like she could play anything considering what she plays in this episode just probably all the stages of grief whether it's anger or denial uh, or bargaining or everything she's really going through a lot and it, it seems clear i think from the episode that she was already going through a lot before anything happened before her mom died before the departure uh, she's somebody who seems to have had kind of a rough go of it in her life and in that way she is more like patty than less and I don't think this is a show that needs a big bad. I don't think we need to have a villain on any season of The Leftovers or every season of The Leftovers. But I do think as you kind of look at the kind of classic hero's journey that Kevin goes on and the sort of things that we're seeing throughout this show, uh, it makes sense that there's a sort of opposing or evil force just as other people are trying to do good or progress toward better. Uh, it makes sense that there are other people who are bringing kind of negativity into it. Right. Well, I think what's been great about this season in particular is how much it has highlighted the man of science and man of faith debate that carries over from Lost that's been very prevalent on the show this season. But now we have a new interesting... Um, perspective to, to toss in the, into the mix, which is, you know, the, the man of nothing or the woman of nothing, you know, sort of the nihilistic approach of, I don't care about the science. I don't care about the faith. We believe in nothing, Lebowski. You know, it, <laughs> it, it feels like that is now in the mix as well. Just somebody who's like, it's, it's less about uh, trying to find out why this happened. Was it some sort of mystical, mystical thing that caused this big global phenomenon? Is there a scientific explanation behind it? Is Kevin Garvey crazy or is he seeing something really powerful? Powerful and pure. Now we're kind of focusing on a character that isn't really interested in those questions. Now we're just focused on a character who cares about impact. And we don't know what that impact is going to look like going into the finale, but we get it summed up by Meg pretty, pretty well when she's talking to the guilty remnant during that sort of um, board meeting with the guilty remnant where she says, why do I need to bother showing up in front of somebody's house and smoking in front of their house and just being quiet when I could put my cigarette out in their eye? So yeah, we, fair question. We have, we have tossed in somebody who wants to put a cigarette out in people's eye into Miracle, into Jarden, um, and you got to believe that the results are going to be explosive, potentially literally. Yeah, uh, I think that that's right. Potentially, literally. We, we hear that Meg is some, probably interested in buying some plastic explosives. We know that there's a bridge in play. We don't. We know that there's a barricade in play. Uh, people are being kept out of Miracle. Um, what's she going to do? Are people going to actually, uh, you know, detonate themselves with these explosives? Are that what these girls are for? Uh, Josh, but by the way, we're kind of burying the lead here. I know. <laughs> I know. We're kind of burying the lead and yeah. putting it in an Airstream camper and sticking it in a barn. Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, Evie is back. The girls are back. We know what happened to the girls. The girls did not suddenly depart. The girls were not kidnapped. They were. They, there was no foul play perpetrated by anyone other than really the girls themselves and, you know, the guilty remnant because Evie and her friends have been in league with the guilty remnant that's the big bombshell that's dropped at the end of this episode and it's a doozy you know it's a real firestorm that i think lit up a lot of fans when that when that moment dropped it wasn't something that you were hearing a lot of in chatter about what could have happened to evie and her friends where could they have gone i don't think that there were many people i'm sure that there were some but i didn't see many people or any people really talking about them as possible members of the guilty remnant so this really did blow me away how about you yeah, me too. There were some discussions about the girls maybe ran away. Um, but then there were some 
you know, that, that, well, why did they run away? Maybe they ran away and kind of staged a departure because they wanted people to think about Miracle. You know, nobody ever really took it to the, as far as I could see, no one took it all the way to the end where it was like they joined the Guilty Remnant. Like, And I think the show's done a pretty good job of keeping the guilty remnant in the background, uh, not keeping them in the forefront like they are in the first season, but making sure that we understand that they are present. The episode with Meg or with Tommy and Lori earlier in the season when we first see Meg, uh, there was, you know, good guilty remnant presence in that episode. And Lori's running them over and Tommy's recruiting them. And Meg is coming after Tommy with the guilty remnant goon squad. So we do know they still exist and they're still in multiple places. But we don't really sense that they have any connection to Miracle or Jarden. So I think that that is uh, a really kind of clever way to tie it all together. First season and second season, all of it. Did you feel like this was a little 11th hour? Uh, like maybe we, you know, we should have seen more or thought more about the Guilty Remnant. I, I only ask this because, and we'll link this up on the show page, Damon Lindelof gave a great, great, great interview with Variety where he talked about the difficulty in this day and age, the internet age, the Reddit age, the post-show recaps age of kind of keeping a surprise kind of under your hat. He cited the Walking Dead issue that played out this season where within a couple of hours people had dissected immediately what the show was going to do uh, that they didn't do for several episodes uh, and it took him, you know, over like almost a month to get to it. Right. And he didn't want that. He didn't want it to be that clear so that people could dissect it. But then again, he wanted to lay enough groundwork so that people understood uh, that, you know, this makes sense. Um, I guess I'm, I'm wondering for you, are we in a new era of television in that regard? Do you think the leftovers stuck the landing that way? Or what do you think about this kind of revelation at, at you know, episode nine um, that wasn't really very, you know, directly linked throughout the rest of the season, but is definitely there? I think it was great. I think that it was really deftly handled. I think I, I buy into a lot of what Lindelof is saying here about how it's really tough to pull out big twists, uh, to pull off big twists in this age where people are looking at shows and stories and with a magnifying glass. And honestly, it's a culture that he greatly contributed to with of course um and so you know he he has that kind of approach is always going to be applied to you know a lindelof show and many other shows but especially a lindelof show and what's interesting about the leftovers is lindelof has put it out there that you know the big big question is not going to get answered uh the what what happened to these people how did the departure happen what what does it mean that's not getting answered but that doesn't mean that there aren't in universe mysteries that will be solved um, and, you know, it could have been that we would never have found out what happened to Evie. And I think that potentially that could have been satisfying, you know, if they had decided to go a different way. Lindelof talks about how there were basically three different possibilities with the girls. Is they either departed, some foul play happened with them, or they staged it. Um, and, you know, much like how an international assassin could have played out a number of different ways, depending on the uniform that Kevin Garvey chose to adorn himself with, I think that there are probably very different ways that this season could have played out if it ends up being some sort of murder mystery type of thing or if it's just existential angst and what happened to them and we'll never really know or now which is door number three which is the door they chose to go down this big twist this big reveal that kind of binds the season together and now makes us realize that oh crap this season has been building toward the guilty remnant hitting miracle um 
I like it. I like it a lot. I love it, even. Um, I think that when you go back and you, and you review the tape in episode one, which Antonio and I have both done, um, there is a lot there now that you know what Evie is truly up to. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. I know that we're both going to unpack it here in a second. Um, but I think that there's also, like, the Guilty Remnant doesn't come out of nowhere. We had a season of the Guilty Remnant. They are in-universe. They exist. They are very much in-universe. And they've been in their way all over this season, you know, from, from the fact that Meg is in an episode earlier on that we have an episode that's devoted to Tommy and Lori busting up the guilty remnant. They remained a part of the show, the fabric of the show, to the fact that Kevin could have chosen to wear a guilty remnant outfit during International Assassin. He'd been haunted by the leader of a certain chapter of the guilty remnant throughout the season. So I think that they've definitely been in the show, but not in the forefront in a way that maybe some people are like, well, this comes out of nowhere. They should have been a little bit more obvious. But I think that the flip side of that is if they had been more on the show, we probably would have started piecing together that the guilty remnant is somehow involved in the disappearance of the girls. And I think that that would have undercut the mystery, uh, undercut the reveal of that mystery history so i really like how it was presented and it becomes this sort of aha moment of of course that makes so much sense so for me it totally totally worked uh what about for you antonio do you think that this landed well or was this something that should have been thought out through a little bit more should have been seeded throughout the show more or was this a good reveal for you that was a great reveal for me. That said, I do think it's difficult because it is interesting that both the first season and the second season now are building toward major guilty remnant actions at the end of the season. In the first season, we had the loved one or the real ones, kind of loved ones, dolls. In the second season, now we have this whatever this is with the bridge incident in Miracle. And I think the one problem that they kind of face is they have not been able to do a lot of world building with the guilty remnant uh, nationwide. We know they're a lot, they're all over New York and the East coast. We saw a couple guilty remnant members at bus stops and in certain places in season one, when Tommy was traveling across the country with Christine, but I don't, I don't think we had a real sense that they were a, a notable presence anywhere else uh, in the country, really. I think we had kind of a loose sense of it, uh, and I think that's tough when your show is localized in Mapleton. I think the show did everything they could without really being ham-handed or telegraphing everything that was going on. Or ham-fist-ed. Or ham-fist-ed, yes, as the case may be. But what I would say is... I think what makes sense about the guilty remnant when Tommy in episode three says they, they know things like they, they have a few things, right? The fact that the guilty remnant does resonate with people like Lori who aren't totally crazy, who aren't like Patty level insane, who in fact are maybe uh, talented, you know, have their shit together. People, um, they, it resonates because they, whatever they bring to the table that people understand. I mean, even Kevin in the last episode, when asked why he smokes, uh, when the lie detector doesn't fail is when he gives the answer of the guilty remnant. I smoked to remember that the world ended. Right. And so they have a resonant kind of message. Uh, and I think the show has shown that. And so it does make sense that even if they didn't have a huge presence in Texas, that they could have developed one. It is weird that the Texas guilty remnant, as we see, I think I, in my notes, I refer to them as like the guilty Davidians. Um, they don't have all white, like the woman who's writing a note to Tommy, like you came with Meg. She's not dressed in the guilty remnant garb. Uh, the guy who's guarding the gate, who's not speaking and, and writing to Meg, he looks like a kind of separatist. He's got sunglasses and a beard and like a camo hat and a sleeveless shirt and a shotgun like he looks like a texas kind of uh, cult guy he doesn't look like a guilty remnant guy so 
this flavor of the guilty remnant is slightly different. The not talking thing there is definitely present, but they're not exactly the same as the other guilty remnant we know. And I think that also makes sense. I do wonder, has Meg just been going back and forth from uh, New York to Texas over the last year? How long has it taken her to build that? I don't think we're going to get any answers on that front, uh, but I think that it's natural to ask ask those questions because it seems obvious that her first connection with evie of course we see in this episode the baby carrot incident you can't cry the broken pencil all of it but then evie walks away and then we see meg get right back on the bus and spit before she gets back on the bus right then what happens does meg at some point come back to miracle as a visitor find evie again start talking to her i mean where does that connection get formed and how active has Meg been outside Miracle in the last couple of years? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, we know when Meg joins the Guilty Remnant is, you know, <laughs> shortly after Hero Day. It's shortly after Hero Day in season one. Right. Um, and she says in the meeting with the Guilty Remnant top uh, top dogs at one point in this episode that I've been inside for almost a year. Right. So, so I don't think that she's been actively planning or building anything until that started. Uh, I think, you know, her mother calls her the most relentless person. She knows there's no stop you once you have your mind set on something but i don't think that that kind of rage that darkness that's inside of her manifests in this truly big violent active way until she hits the remnant that's my guess um that being said i think that that is one one issue that i take with this is the timeline is the fact that it, it hasn't been that long since meg has been in the remnant you know relatively it's less than a year um she has just that much time to get into a position of power she's in charge of a chapter she's in charge of a house uh she has enough sway over certain people to convince these people in texas to be on her team to be on her side to be part of this sort of you know this is not something that the that the higher-ups of the guilty remnant seem to be giving the thumbs up to this plan of action that she's putting into place this is meg going rogue this is you know we, we can call it the guilty remnant but it's really something else it's meg's perversion of an already right. kind of perverted ideology um so well, that that's one thing i will say it's it's entirely possible her message took hold very quickly because she's preaching to a very specific part of the guilty remnant to all those people who want to put the cigarettes out right who want to put them out on people who want to really shock the conscience not just to the people who are satisfied standing around getting literally stoned uh and kind of just being present in people's lives she's maybe speaking to the people who are very fervent about their desire to shake people up and shock consciences and that sort of message i think takes hold pretty quickly yeah Absolutely. But I think with with Evie, um, with with getting in league with Evie and how how did she reestablish communication with her? How did she get in touch with her? How did she indoctrinate her? You know, how did she get Evie onto her side? How did she convince Evie that this is the way of the world? We do see that a year before season one even begins, we see that version of Evie smiling with braces, you know, these shy smiles, these baby carrots. But somebody who, you know, somebody who laughs at a stupid knock knock joke, but somebody who clearly does seem wounded and damaged and a little bit nihilistic herself of like, I'm sorry you didn't find what you were looking for here. Nobody ever does. A little bit more John Murphy maybe than we would have given her credit for based on her appearance in the first episode. Or a little bit, yeah, or a little bit more left 
left over his teenager. Right. I mean, we, we kind of dropped that in this season, or it seemed like we did. The first season is full of these nihilistic, negative, bad worldview teenagers who are choking each other for sexual pleasure, who are just using drugs like, you know, like teenagers are want to do. But in this case, with the idea that there's no point in the world, uh, and you talk about, like, we believe in nothing, Lebowski. Like, of course, the teenagers in that first season, when we podcasted about it, are just awful people. And and we didn't really see much of that the second season. Evie was a cheerful person, throwing softball, singing choir, frolicking in the water and in the woods. Uh, and was a very polite, pleasant kind of religious teenager. We didn't really see that come out in Miracle this season. But it stands to reason that in this world, of course, teenagers would be that way. And it makes sense that Evie would be, under the surface, the kind of teenager that we saw in the first season and not just this miracle person. Just because, it, just like it's in keeping with the rest of the thing, just because someone lives in miracle doesn't mean that they're mad or fixed or that they don't feel pain. And I think it was kind of silly for anyone to assume that teenagers in Miracle were, were exempt from this somehow. Uh, and so it makes a ton of sense that Evie would be like this. Right. It makes a ton of sense that she would be like this. I just feel like the, the window of time is short. It very, I agree with that completely. You know, I feel like the window of time is short for Meg to have, you know, joined the guilty remnant and inside of a year, not quite a year, she's in a position of power. She's causing a rebellion and she has managed to get Evie back to her side, uh, or onto her side rather. And, and I just, I don't, I don't, it's not something that I'm going to take a huge amount of issue with, but it is a head scratcher for me. It's not something I expect the show is necessarily going to address or even needs to address. Uh, but you know, and there was some other timeline stuff in this episode too, um, with, with Tommy has only been doing the Holy Tommy thing for about a month. Felt like maybe that would have been going on for a little bit longer. Um, so there's just a little bit of that kind of thing that stuck in my craw, just a touch. Uh, but by and large, the great stuff in this episode was phenomenal. Um, yeah, I think we might. I think we might get some background, um, at least, kind of some inclination of how they contacted each other. I mean, there's some questions or comments about that on our page of post show recaps. A lot of people are wondering if the cricket noise from Evie uh, in episode one that John was so intent on hearing was a secret cell phone that she'd been using to communicate with Meg. Right, because um, we hear that Meg's cell phone ringtone is crickets. Is cricket noise, right. And I don't know that that's true. I mean, it would have had to have been a text alert, the way that the uh, the kind of noise was happening in intermittently. Uh, and maybe that phone is wrapped up in the box for John, and that if he would have just opened the gift, uh, he would have seen, he would have made the connections a lot sooner. I don't know that that's true. Um, but I think that there are possibilities there that we could get a little bit more information about why this thing happened. I mean, looking back, if you go into the first episode, there are, I think, now that we know Evie and the girls staged their disappearance and joined the guilty remnant, apparently, there are, I think, a lot more clues that this was the case. We talked a ton on this podcast about the weird scene of the girls right after they're done frolicking in the water by Dr. Goodhart, blah, 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 blah. They get in their car, no music, no talking, very odd, yes. right? Yes, yes. But then by the time they're back at the house, the music has started again when Michael is outside waiting for them. So it does seem like when others are around, they're certainly keeping up the appearance of being these happy-go-lucky girls, and then when they're by themselves, then they act like guilty remnant girls. And I think that the scene with them frolicking through the forest now that reads almost as a dry run right, of their yeah. kind of planned escape, uh, taking off their clothes so that dogs can't sniff their trail, that sort of thing. I think that there is some possible validity to that as well. Where do their well. clothes go? 
I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're in the car. Maybe they put them in a bag and someone else picked them up. Uh, maybe they left them in the forest somewhere and like a guilty remnant person was whose job it was to get him. Get him. I, you don't really know, but I think that there's at least a possibility. Maybe they departed, Josh. Maybe only their clothes departed. <laughs> their clothes suddenly Yeah, departed. I'm making the rated, like, our NC-17 version of this show where oh, people's God. clothes departed on the 14th, but nothing else. Oh, my God. I like it. No, I, I think that HBO, that seems like an HBO show, uh, just of a different sort of ilk. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what happens. I mean, you watch that first episode. Evie tells the very broken pencil knock-knock joke to yes. John. Yes, 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 she does. She sings the we are, we are miracle, we're spared kind of choir song and choir practice, and she casts like a sidelong glance at her, at her friend and kind of smirks. And uh, that's really telling. Uh, it's like, oh, we're singing this song about how we're all spared and how we're all safe. Um, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I I didn't get really a lot of clues from that night when they're at dinner. I don't know if you did that. Evie was about to pull something off. I really didn't sense that from things that were going down. So I thought that that was interesting. But there are those few scenes: the the car scene, the naked run, the uh, knock knock joke, and the choir practice scene that I think really are interesting in light of the fact that we know what happened now. Yeah, totally. Her private moments are very guilty remnant. You know, when she's in the car and when she's in the woods, those are very, very honest guilty remnant that are very consistent with the Evie that we see at the end of episode nine. Um, her public appearances are not. And that suggests to me somebody who is cold, who is who is really dark and frigid and is able to pull off a con like this. Because when she when she leaves her parents at the at the end of the first episode, when she goes to ride off with with the kids, with the, with the two girls that we now know, the three of them are in league to pull off this big plan that we don't know the full details of, but we know that their disappearance is a big part of it. Um, there's no fanfare. She gives her father a present, says it's the best present you'll ever get. Don't freak out. She doesn't really give any attention to her mom on the way out or to her own twin brother. She just gets in the car. So there's really no clues to be divined there. Only just the takeaway of now knowing who Evie is and what she's up to and why well not the why but what she's doing what she's doing that she's part of the guilty remnant and why she disappeared um it's just it's contrasted with this person who is this really joyful seeming you know vibrant energetic youthful child who had these real feelings of probably rage and darkness inside of her that she was able to cloak so well um so those scenes there's again not a ton of clues to get from them but they're they have a really different flavor when you go back and watch and oh, yeah. see all those smiles and see how she interacts with other people and when she's being flirty with Dr. Goodhart and all that stuff. Um, when she's, you know, being really sweet towards, towards Jill or when she's being, you know, um, vulgar towards Jill as well. Like all of that takes on new meaning. Um, so watching the Evie scenes in the first episode, now knowing what we know, um, it's great. It's a really great experience, and it do, it feels consistent. It, it it all works. It all works with this big reveal. Yeah, it's dark, like you said. It does work, but it is dark knowing that she could be kind of playing everybody, She's including playing Michael, including, including her, Michael, including yeah. her brother, her parents. Yeah, it's just it's really it's really dark, and I you know I understand. Like I said, I understand. We live in a world in this show uh, where teenagers, especially, were impacted by this and uh, we also live in a world where the, the predominant theme of this season re-miracle has been there are no miracles in miracle no one is spared no one is safe and i think that just by disappearing she's woken a lot of people including her mother up to that possibility we don't know what her and her mother were fighting in sign language about 
in that first episode. I don't, you know, we know Erica was planning on leaving and was worried about Evie. I think we see now that maybe she was right to be worried about Evie, but also wrong to be worried about Evie in that yeah. Evie was clearly like a, a, a leagues ahead of where Erica thought she was in terms of her ability to be self-actualized. Right. Well, Erica was the one who dropped the bomb on us earlier in the season. Like, I was going to leave my family. We're like, whoa, that's hardcore. Well, her daughter beat yeah. her to the punch. Exactly. And and so it makes sense because we know why Erica was going to leave. We know that things in the Murphy household are not as good as they seem. We know that it's a household that's been touched. Uh, well, that's the wrong word. We know that it's a household that's been affected uh, by some you know negative incidents uh, that have happened in their past, uh, whether it's violence from John, whether it's a criminal activity from Isaac, um, or not Isaac, Virgil. Uh, we know bad things have happened to these yeah. people. We've seen it play out with Isaac, uh, John's anger and how that manifests. And we know that, that his anger is getting worse. I did think it was very interesting in this episode that we saw Isaac was already acting as a psyche, handprints on the wall and everything when Meg came to visit, right. which means either John had not had been in jail for like a longer than we thought, I think, or that John is just progressively deciding to take action against the people in Miracle uh, and that this Isaac thing, even though it's not new that he's practicing, uh, it's new that John would be cracking down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, that was all in effect. That was really interesting. There's a lot to talk about with Isaac as well. I th- let's push that off for a little while. Um, but but let's let's drill down more into the into the Evie thing. So we know we know that Evie is alive. We know that Evie is guilty remnant. We know that she's in league with Meg. We know that Meg has big plans for Miracle. She has this bone chilling scene with Reverend Matt. Uh, outside at the park looking up at the bridge. That's a great scene. It's an unbelievable scene that I, you know, was half expecting that she was just going to, like, slit Matt's throat at the end of the thing. Uh, she may as well have, just with her words, they were so sharp. Uh, the whole, I'll tell you what you were waiting for, you were waiting for me. Um, I mean, we could really just stop down and talk about how terrific that scene was. It was yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really, really good. Um, but, but what do you think? A lot of speculation about what Meg's plan is and why the girls are involved. Uh, in International Assassin, there's the three ropes that are hanging on the side of the bridge. I know a lot of people think that the girls are going to commit suicide on the bridge. I know that there's a lot of people who think that these plastic explosives that Meg has been rumored to be purchasing, according to the Guilty Remnant leaders... Um, um, that that will somehow come into play involved with the bridge as well. We hear from Meg talking to Matt about how come you guys aren't just storming Jarden. I'll tell you why. It's because you're waiting for me. That indicates some sort of, you know, break in the walls of Jericho type of deal. What's your take? What's your prediction? Where do you think this is going? What do you think Meg and Evie are up to? What's the big plan? What are we going to get here in the finale? Well, there's a lot of possibilities. I would say that we know the Guilty Remnant are kind of trolls more than anything, that they take action to get people to react. That's uh, right. But, that's right. But I do think it's really important to make the distinction between Meg and the Guilty Remnant. I was just going to say, but this is Meg's Guilty Remnant. Right. So all bets are off in that regard. It seems to me to be a likely possibility that, look, there's a bear a guard station, a bridge, all of that, keeping Outer Miracle from storming the gates at Inner Miracle. And Meg really opines to Matt here that I don't understand why you people aren't breaking in. You're very close. Like, you're it's just on the other side of that bridge. What are you waiting for? Um, you know, you want it, but you aren't doing anything to get it. So what are you waiting for? And she says, you're waiting for me. So it seems possible or seems likely, I think, from that direct statement that her intention is to spur the people outside of Miracle to act and to kind of take Miracle 
boil down to keep it from being this preserved kind of wonderful place. Early in the episode, uh, when she kind of meets up with Tommy and Tommy says, my family moved to Texas, she rather sarcastically observes that, oh, it's not, you know, it's not Miracle, it's Jardiner. It's not Jarden, it's Miracle. Right, she's parroting and, back what she heard on the, uh, on the audio tour. And parroting in a very kind of uh, abrasive, negative, hostile way. Yes. Like, she doesn't like that the, the place represents itself as this sort of, you know, fortress against the people that might want to seek to take it down. And so I think uh, that she probably wants to try to take it down. I can foresee a scenario where the girls have plastic explosives strapped to themselves and they're standing on that bridge and everyone is observing it and no one wants to come close because they're worried the girls will detonate and you know that's the thing that's happening and will people storm the gates will the girls detonate the vests uh will they be the three nooses will they kill themselves on that bridge with plastic explosives opening up the gates i think that's the major question going into this this last episode right rather than it being they are literally <coughs> hanging themselves it would be more of a you know where you know that's representing the fact that this could be you know three self sacrifices right 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 and and i think that that is uh that's entirely possible i think that that's in keeping with the kind of mores if you will or goals of the original guilty remnant i also think that the seriously violent nature of that action is more in keeping with meg's version of the guilty remnant and so i think that it kind of dovetails very nicely there it makes sense it makes sense with what meg has kind of said about wanting you know wanting to get rid of miracle or, or get rid of the the protection around miracle get the people from outer miracle to kind of wake up uh, and take what is theirs or what should be theirs. They, people shouldn't be able to build fortresses against this. I kind of observed at some point, I don't remember if it was in a comment or on this podcast or somewhere, it reminds me of the Mask of the Red Death, the Edgar Allan Poe story, where this prince, I think, builds this great kind of fortress against the plague. Uh, he's going to have all these parties and all these, uh, all these salons and all these kind of rooms that are beautiful and well-appointed. And he's going to invite everyone in, uh, and he's going to lock the gates against the Red Death. And then uh, all of a sudden, one of the partygoers takes a mask off and is revealed that that person has brought the plague in. It. And it's like you cannot kind of shield yourself off against what the rest of the world is experiencing. You can't do it. It will find a way to, to penetrate through. And I think that more than anything, it seems like Meg was kind of upset about Miracle being held out as this fortress against the grief and depression and all of the things that the rest of the world was experiencing. It's funny because I don't think Meg realizes, or maybe she does because she was able to recruit Evie, but people in Miracle aren't happy. I mean, people in Miracle don't feel like some of them probably do, but not all of them, certainly. And it's not an answer to everyone. Uh, and I think that we've seen that play out with what's happened with Kevin and Nora, who came looking for answers. We see that happening with the Murphy family. The girls disappearing at all shocked a lot of consciences. But yet a lot of the people in the town still want to let the guy kill the goat. Right. So, you know, it is this place that some of the people very much still do believe is safe and spared and sacred. Uh, they have hymns about it. And so I understand Meg's desire to kind of shatter that and shock that conscience because she wants people to wake up. She wants people to see what's happening. She wants that's the goal of the guilty remnant. So it makes a ton of sense that she would target Miracle, especially having been there. Um, I don't know. What did you think about her first visit there? Uh, did you think that Isaac told her something that made her really angry and that's why she's really out to take down Miracle? I mean, we don't really see that happen on screen. We, we got a kind of an off-screen whatever reveal of that. But it seemed to me like her mom was, was going to say something really not that important uh, and certainly not something that would make Meg upset. 
Isaac himself seemed worried that it was the banal nature of the comment that would upset Meg, that it wasn't anything serious, that it was just something silly, and that, that Meg wouldn't want to hear these silly things as her last words. But I think a lot of people are speculating that it was something that made her really upset or angry. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think that. I don't think that it was one thing that made her really upset or angry, other than the nature of whatever her mother's last words were, uh, which I believe to be summed up in the knock-knock joke. I think that it's pointless yep. is what her what her mother's final words were. It's going to take me a minute or two to tell you, but it could have just been a minute or two, you know, basically like a shaggy dog type of thing, you know, just, exactly. just something that doesn't really matter that much. So no, I don't think that there's something in terms of like the importance of what her mother said to Meg. I don't it's think that, that it wasn't important. Right. I think that the fact that it wasn't important is much more the point. I think that the, that the miracle thing is really, really, really interesting when it comes to Meg um, as for why she's targeting this place, because I think miracle represents Meg in a very, uh, specific way. Um, Meg is somebody who is clearly, clearly off kilter, off balance, very angry, wants to express her rage and, you know, impress that upon the world and have these people remember. Um, but it's not so much about remembering, you know, the, the grief that the departure caused. It's more about like, you know, this departure you, that you guys are hyping up is just this big deal thing. Uh, don't forget that before the departure happened, people died and people got angry and people got upset and people dying ruined lives before this whole big mysterious thing happened. And it's summarized in the fact that Meg didn't really lose anyone in the departure. She lost someone right before the departure. She lost someone in her mother in this complete random, uh, cosmic thing you know just the fact that her mother dropped dead when she seemed like she was doing totally fine uh you know i guess like the worst thing that was happening was that she got some walnuts on her salad and so she had to send it back and get a new one but there was no sign that she was just going to drop dead like that and it was just this random act of universal cruelty that meg was really struck by even if she's saying two years later that she's fine now it was two years ago i'm doing okay um and she is told that she's the lucky one at least you know where your mom went you know what happened to your mom and that's what all these people who are affected by the departure tell her and isaac really sums up pretty well he's like that's some bs like that like you're the lucky one like that's great uh you know you you have this horrible life affecting thing happen to you the day before this global phenomenon that has affected just about everybody else on the planet and no one cares about your grief anymore um and i think that meg is really latching onto that and miracle is a is the one place apparently where no one departed where no one affected that uh, where, where that wasn't a thing that happened and so evie doesn't have anybody that is suddenly gone that has suddenly departed or anything like that but that's not to say that evie doesn't have her own personal stories of grief and loss you know her father goes away to jail her father shoots her grandfather presumably um there's you know there's a lot of a lot of angst in her life that is covered up by this big global event that mirrors is saying that we were immune from and of course you're not immune uh, you know from from tragedy and loss just because nobody cosmically disappeared in one instance so i think that meg is really offended by by that notion i think that she takes it very very personally and my guess as to what meg is cooking up is you know this idea of 
you don't know, you know, like at least you know what happened to your people is like the better answer than what happened to the departure. And I think that using Evie as an example of actually you're wrong to that argument of, well, here's what happened to this person who maybe it would have been better if she had just departed. She's with me. She is on my team. And by the way, she's blowing herself up on a bridge. So at least you know what happened. Um, and that, that feels, <laughs> that, that feels to me like her answer. That feels to me like the cigarette she's planning on putting out in Miracle's Eye. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is, in like in season one, Matt kind of observed that it wasn't fair that she was denied her grief over her mother. But we see before her mother died, this the very important, I think, factor that not only is Meg already just doing coke to get through a normal lunch with her mother. Which doesn't make her inherently evil or anything like that. Maybe, you know, chill out on the coke lines during walnut salad lunch. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe just chill out on that a little bit. But that doesn't make you inherently evil. No, but her mom does observe. To her, uh, what does she say to her? Right, she says something about her being tenacious. She says, uh, "You're the most relentless person that I've ever met." Uh, and you know, once you've got an idea in your head, there's no stopping you. Yeah. So we know that that's the way she is. We know that she, you know, uh, is doing is doing coke just to get through a launch. So which she's shows, not which shows us, you know, an edgier side of Meg than maybe we had in our heads. You right. Know, we, she's we, not this perfect, like, right. oh, I was ready to get married until the departure happened, kind of person. Right. She was already a relentless person. She was already needing to you know, do drugs more than once during a, a normal lunch with her mother just to get through it. And I think that that's difficult, too, because if you're in that position where you have a lot of those negative feelings about her, your mother, look, the lunch wasn't all peaches and cream either or walnut salads. Uh, it was a lot of kind of like back and forth like, you know, I cover you all the time. I bought those boots for you. I'm getting the check out to pay you right now. I don't want to owe you anything. Like a lot of negativity between the two of them. Mom appeared to be rich wanted to pay for the wedding. We also find out through Meg, at least from what she's saying, that um, her father was gone right away. Her stepdad came in, wanted to adopt her. Happy family. Judge gives her a lollipop. He's gone within a year. Right. So it's like we know that she's kind of had a rough go of it going in now. And I think that that's interesting uh, because it isn't just that her mother died or the departure happened. She was already the kind of person who, once those things happened, was ready to kind of be different and snap a little bit. And what's really interesting about that is the Meg we see in season one is a Meg who is not both feet in on the guilty remnant it takes them a while to recruit her when she does show up she's talking all the time yeah, she breaks the no talking rule a lot yeah and she's pushing Lori to do it uh she's pissed she's really kind of um, like angry and emotional and not able to kind of be stoic like the guilty remnant uh Lori is very upset with her late in season one about this uh so we know that you know, that's the meg we know she wasn't in with both feet on the gr from the beginning but there were things about the gr that were apparently appealing to her so I think that that's all very interesting. I mean, if you'll recall, she's the one who told Lori, like, to keep the lighter that your daughter gave you. That's important. Right. Like, I'm not going to tell on you. Like, she, so she's always been kind of one foot in and one foot out. Uh, and it certainly seems like in the year that she's gotten this battlefield promotion to be the leader, presumably, of the Mapleton Guilty Remnant, which caused horrible, horrible things to happen in Mapleton. Uh, then she's gotten a lot more militant and a lot more angry and a lot more, I'm sick of your methods and I want to do it my way. And we know that that relentlessness and that sort of anger is not something that originates directly from her mother dying or from the departure, that she already had some issues coming in. Uh, and I think that that's important, at least for me, because you're right, like stripping her away of the right to mourn her mother by what happens uh, on the 14th, uh, all of that, telling you, you know, at least you know, all of those things, I'm sure, are, are hard shoves to the back 
in terms of pushing her over to the other side. But she was already a person who had a lot of kind of personality issues, let's just call them, that probably make her the kind of person that's ripe to occupy the role that she occupies now, for sure. Yeah. I think that it, it's what makes those pushes mean something. It's what makes her lose her balance when she gets pushed. It's what makes her kind of travel and not be able to stand there and take it like a normal guilty remnant. It's what makes her want to push back. And I think that that's the interesting part of Meg uh, that we found out in this episode. I think that's why it's important that we had the little expositional backstory talk with Tommy and that we got the scene with her mother the way we got it. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that all of those qualities are what made her such a compelling, attractive target for the guilty remnant to recruit, why they are so aggressively interested in having Meg as part of their coalition in the first episode of the series. Um, You know, the, the guilty remnant is organized chaos. In, in the face of a world that they believe really has no order anymore. Uh, and they're trying to remind society at large about that. But, you know, the thing that, that Meg, the thing about Meg is that she's, you know, you can't put her in a bottle. And I think that that's something that the guilty remnant completely underestimates with her. And I think that we as an audience had underestimated with her. But when you look back through the evidence, through the scenes of Meg that we have gotten in the past, all of the clues were there that Meg was somebody that you just can't contain. Uh, she's somebody who doesn't care about following your rules to the letter. And it really spills over in this episode. You know, this is the episode where all of those ideas that had been put in the bottle are now overflowing. And it makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense that Meg would be sort of this extraordinarily relentless force of chaos that you cannot stop without putting a cigarette in her eye, or worse, probably. Um, yeah. So, so how, how this chaos gets contained is going to be fascinating. Um, I don't know how this ends in anything other than extreme violence. Um, I don't know that there is a pacifistic way of stopping what Meg is bringing to the table here. It doesn't seem like um, even harsh language would bring her down. Um, so that's going to be that's going to be really cool. And I think that this episode really earned um, earned a ton. I mean, and just like to call out a few of the really terrific Liv Tyler scenes, like the bus unbelievable you know her coming on the bus with the grenade the bus with the grenade and pulling the pulling the pin and rolling it and the camera staying in the bus as she leaves and the doors are barred and only then do you find out that it's children on there because they're screaming and they're wailing and she's walking away from the bus in a total cool guys don't look at explosions move and the bus i kept waiting for the bus to blow up uh i really really did and the fact that the bus didn't blow up surprised me even more um and that's it, it, you know it's not crueler than actually killing a bunch of kids but it's so it's so sharp and cruel in its own way of let me give these kids an unbelievably traumatic incident to remember forever they will never forget the time that that crazy lady got on the bus and rolled a grenade at them this is a story that will haunt them for the rest of their lives uh so that was just that was incredibly incredibly well done and to have that juxtaposed with the fairly benign meg that we were seeing in the scenes leading up to this Um, well yeah i mean juxtapose it to the other bus scene where right. Wade in the Water is being sung and where she's kind of happily getting into Miracle with her fiancé. Uh, yeah, juxtapose that with, with the Meg we see on that bus. Um, JMac610 on our post-show recaps page kind of observed that it reminded him of a scene in Fight Club where the, the goal of the scene is to make the people grow from the experience for the better, um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, Meg, Meg is looking for different results, not necessarily grow for the better. She is scaring those kids and making them feel like they don't live in a safe world. And I think that more than anything, that indoctrinates them to her will. 
way of thinking than anything else. And I think that the bus not blowing up uh, is is kind of it's torture. It's mental torture. I mean, those kids are going to live the rest of their lives now thinking about that incident and scarred by it. And I think that was clearly Meg's goal. And that's almost more terrifying than blowing them all up that that she wants to torture them as much as she can the rest of their lives through that incident and probably their parents as well it is much more of a psychological action than it is a violent one uh and i think that the fact that meg is able to do both is what makes the next episode stakes so high right. um, she didn't kill the kids in the bus but we, we we see her wanting to be violent uh and we know that she can be violent so it's just a matter of time whether she you know it's just a matter of is this going to be a psychological action or a violent one with psychological impacts? Uh, I think we'll just have to wait and see. But I think it's interesting to see those two, two scenes juxtaposed for sure. Um, what other Meg scenes did you want to highlight? The laughter. You know, when she's laughing at Tommy and just cannot stop laughing when Tommy tells her that her that his family is in, in Texas and in Jarden or in Miracle, rather. And she says, oh, Jarden is the town, Miracle is the park. And it just so happens I'm going there, too. And she just cannot stop cracking up. And it's this, you know, really long take of Liv Tyler just laughing in your face like the Joker. Um, it was it was so haunting. And that's really the moment. I think that Alan Sepinwall and his review said something to the effect of like, can we please never have Liv Tyler ever smile again? Never let her smile again. It is too scary. Uh, it was really, really disturbing. And that's really, I mean, this episode was already such a showcase for her and, um, you know, really probably the best acting that she's ever done uh, this entire episode. Um, but this was really the turning point of like, oh my God, she really is the clown princess of crime here. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's very Joker-esque and kind of, uh, you know, just this sort of smiling in the face of what the world has brought her. Like not only uh, is this, she doesn't even know Lori is there either. I don't think, but when, when she finds out that Lori is there, I, I, is that going to change things? Lori was sort of her mentor in the guilty remnant. Uh, she had the connection with her when she finds out Lori is there. Will that, will that stiffen her resolve? Will it soften it? Will it have any impact? Will she find out at all? I don't know, but there is, it's beyond just, Someone she knows from Mapleton who she thinks is nice is there. Uh, it is that, that, you know, Lori is there and other things could play out that way. She's a lot of connections to Miracle anyway, finding out she had personal ones and kind of laughing about the sort of crazy coincidences in the universe. Uh, I, like you said, crown prince of crime for sure. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, we talked crown about, <laughs> we, we talked about is, is this going to be violent or psychological, what she's planning to do next. And the bus thing was maybe more psychological than it was violent, but it was a violent assault on psychology. It oh, was, absolutely. It was a very violent assault on psychology. And she has shown actual violence. She orders the execution of somebody in this right. episode. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the guy who, presumably wandered into the barn and saw the girls rather than hold on to him for a day rather than let him be there for another day because tomorrow it's not going to matter anyway she decides uh no more half measures we're going full measure we're going all the way in and we are killing this guy so that there's no chance that he could break free and spoil our plan so she orders this guy not only to be killed but to be stoned to death which is something that the guilty remnant has done in the past to their own members um but now she is stoning just a totally random guy who just had the unfortunate luck of deciding on that beautiful sunny day in texas that he would veer a mile off the path uh off the bicycle path so she has demonstrated actual violence actual fatal lethal violence uh even if she's not the one throwing the stone she's commanding the throne the stone to be thrown 
Yeah. Uh, and, and trying to get Tommy to do it. So it's like she not only wants to act, but she wants to corrupt. And I think right. that that's kind of dark and, and really just on its own, just a, a horrible thing. Um, we had some people kind of observe that that character reminded them a little bit of Tommy, that, you know, that that was something that, um, that, you know, maybe Tommy's innocence or kind of act accidental involvement. We don't really know what that long-haired guy kind of was doing. There was speculation that he, quote-unquote, saw, that he was poking around in the barn. And that, you know, we see the guy, the, the Texas, the, the guilty Davidian there, saying like, ah, we'll just keep him alive, you know, after tomorrow. It won't matter. Uh, and, you know, she's like, no, stone him, you know, kill him. And that's dark and scary and really just kind of we know where Meg is at this point. She's doing kind of crazy things. What about the scene with her and Tommy when Tommy asks her, why did you, you know, why did you have sex with me? And then later when, you know, they have this romantic moment uh, in this honky tonk somewhere, she basically says, I wanted to get you pregnant. What did you make of all that? Is she, is that all psychological torture and abuse of Tommy? Is she using Tommy for something else? I mean, what are her true feelings there, do you think? Right. I mean, there's, there's a few reads on that. First off, that scene was amazing. Um, and, and I think speaks to, uh, you know, what you said was she wants to corrupt Tommy. There's something really seductive about Meg, um, which makes it easy to see time, timeline issues aside, which makes it really easy to see how she's able to seduce Evie to the dark side. Uh, you know, a true Sith Lord, uh, this, uh, this Meg. Sith Lord Meg for sure. And there's just something very seductive about her, the way she talks, the way she speaks to you, her soft movements, her soft features, the way that she basically kisses your ear as she spews venom inside of it. It's really, really amazing and powerful. And again, just props to Liv Tyler and to the character. It's easy to see how all that stuff is generating so many corrupted individuals. Um, and certainly her trying to to woo Tommy over to the dark side as well. And so stemming from that, you can take the line about pregnancy a number of ways. You can take it literally. You could say, I wanted to get you pregnant, and getting you pregnant means we're pregnant. Hey, we're having a baby. It's not like, I got you, Tommy, pregnant. You're Arnold Schwarzenegger Jr., and this is going to be a great thing, and it's going to be a very funny season three. I don't think that's in the <laughs> I don't think that's in the offing. I think it's, we're pregnant. You know, I got I got us pregnant. Um, that's one read of it, and maybe that's, that's in the mix. Um, I, I don't know where the show goes with that, but that absolutely could be literally in the mix. They did have sex. It's entirely possible that she's pregnant with Tommy Garvey's kid. Um, the other read of it is I wanted to get you pregnant with ideas. I wanted to get you pregnant with darkness. I wanted to, I wanted to create this growing doubt in you. I wanted to create this lingering desire to do something more than what you're doing. Forget the hugs. Let's go tear some people apart. You know, it, it could be, I wanted to get you into my, into my circle. Yeah. Um, because, because when she shows up earlier and Tommy's dispensing with the hugs, and Tommy's saying, you know, I can take your pain away. And she accepts the hug. That's when she basically, you know, puts her tongue in his ear and says, I can do this for real. Not let's go kill some people. Not let's go blow some people up. Not I want to stone people and murder people. Not I want to throw grenades on buses. But I can take your pain away. Yeah. And I think that it's it's seeing in Tommy the sort of vulnerability and the, the kind of lost and we know that's who Tommy was from the beginning. If you'll recall the flash from season one, when he's working for Holy Wayne, uh, Buddy Garrity, Senator Buddy Garrity asks him, why did you, uh, you know, why did you join up? And we see a flash from Tommy in college of two people just jumping off the top of a building, killing themselves. Right. Uh, Butch and Sundance style. And Tommy's like, oh, you know, college wasn't really for me. And it's like, he's seen some shit and he's had a really rough go of it before anything happened kind of in season one. 
Uh, we know that Tommy had been struggling, and that's why he sort of found a connection with Holy Wayne, and he was already out there in pain and looking for answers. And so he is susceptible to this. And of course, Meg. He's also a guy who's this. he's also a guy who's willing to kill for his cause. Yeah, you know, we, and I, she we, doesn't really know that, but no. yeah. But we saw him in the second episode of the series, which you know, arguably is probably the worst episode of the series. Uh, we've seen him murder on behalf Doesn't of Holy Wayne. Peter Berg? Yeah, I, I don't know if he killed Peter Berg or if Peter Berg died separately, but he killed some SWAT dudes, just straight up shot some people. So to- Tommy's got blood on his hands and a willingness to kill for a cause he truly believes in, which makes him Absolutely. a valuable person for Meg to corrupt if she can fully corrupt him. Yeah, and I think that that uh, you know she she is the perfect face of corruption, as you say. The soft features, the kind of you know like uh, there's just a lot going on there with that actress and with Liv Tyler, just what she brings to the table without saying a word. And I think that this episode did a masterful job taking advantage of that and showing how that character would take advantage of that and use that to her benefit. What she wants out of Tommy, I don't know. Is it? revenge on Lori? Is it somebody that would be kind of the perfect lieutenant uh, because he would kill for his cause? It it could be any of those things. Uh, It's just enough to say that Meg wants to corrupt him. Meg wants to bring, she's like a spider, right? She wants to bring him into her web uh, and I think that that all, it really plays out, and that's fantastic. Um, what did you think of the Tommy stuff in this episode? Because I do know that this is something that some people have been um, a little reject, you know, rejecting a bit. I haven't been the biggest Tommy Garvey fan in these podcasts and during my run on The Leftovers. Uh, I, I liked him a lot in episode three. It was very complimentary towards Chris Zilka, who I thought did a really great job in there. But I do know that there are a bunch of people who were a little thumbs down on Tommy in this episode specifically. Did you think that he detracted from you know the awesomeness that Liv Tyler was bringing to the table. What's your overall take on how Tommy played into this and what your expectations are of Tommy moving forward? Well, I think he could play a key role, and I think that that's uh, – it remains to be seen. I think my verdict will be based on what what role, if any, he plays kind of in the show going forward because, you know – his fight with Lori was good. I thought it was rooted well. I thought the fact that Meg kind of got in his head uh, with the I can do this for real, so then he doesn't show up to the next hug meeting, uh, and Lori is pissed at him, and Tommy's pissed at her for essentially taking what he would see as something real. Remember, he's the one who said the guilty remnant knows some things. They have some things figured out. He wants this kind of real connection. And Lori is sort of just monetizing it and using it for her own personal benefit. And Tommy at that point doesn't see the, it doesn't matter that it's fake if people think it's real kind of value. He wants something real. He wants something that is, that is legitimate and that there's a connection to. And so I, I appreciate that. I, I think Tommy's uh, motive there does not upset me or anger me in any way. I didn't think he was being petulant. I didn't think his anger and frustration at Lori came from out of nowhere. I certainly didn't think he was in the wrong. Uh, and so I thought that scene was good. He gets drunk. Um, he's drinking cheap whiskey, Dickel uh, whiskey. He's watching someone abandon a dog uh, outside in the park. I think that probably hits a little too close to home for Tommy. Uh, and then, of course, he gets into the new Rochelle house and just basically throws a fit until he gets put in a situation where he can see Meg. Um, you know, he's willing to get braced by the guilty remnant, get beat up uh, so he can kind of interact with Meg. Uh, and that's when we get that scene about uh, the family being in Texas. So I do think that it makes sense that she would want to recruit Tommy. I could, like I said, on any number of levels, I didn't think the Meg list Tommy scenes in this episode took anything away from the episode. I would 
It'll be interested to see, though, what's the point of all of it. Like, so, so Tommy is in Miracle, and he's been kind of screwed in the head by Meg, but also not screwed to the point where he participated in the stoning, and also not screwed to the point where he didn't go into the barn and see what was happening. Uh, and so will he be an avenging angel? Will Tommy kind of uh, be the guy who dies at the end of the episode, next episode, to save everyone else? Is that what we're leading to? I think that um, we'll find out if the juice is worth the squeeze. He's going to give the bomb see. a hug. Yeah, he's going to he may do that, and, and we're going to see what role that plays, yeah. uh, whether this investment in Tommy was worth it or not. I think it will be. I think so, too. Um, I will say I was annoyed with him being like drunk in the Guilty Remnant house. Like, ah, shut up, dude. <laughs> just just, just t- turn it down a little bit. It's not easy to play drunk angry, and, you know, it's... Uh, it did it, take me out a little bit. I was like, ah, come on. It's one small scene, Jeff. It's one small scene. It's totally fine. But, I mean, I think that there there are some people. I, I was reading a headline, or I don't know if it was the headline or if it was uh, the, the lead in a Vulture recap that said, like, well, we went from my favorite episode uh, of The Leftovers or the best episode of The Leftovers to the worst. Uh, so there are people who are walking away from 1013 with hard thumbs down. Um, I, I don't see that. I, I, and, I, and I'm trying. I'm trying to see how you could be hard thumbs down on the show if you've been all in up to this point. Um, do you see that perspective? Can you, can you see how people would walk away from this episode and say that was just the worst? I can if they really just can't stand the guilty remnant or anything it represents. In that Lindelof interview with Variety, he even he talks about it. Yeah. yeah, he talks about how a lot of people in season one thought this is a great show except for the guilty remnant. The part. best part is he agrees with that, doesn't he? Isn't he a like, little bit, yeah. He like, I kind of see what you're com- where you're coming from. Yeah, and I think that I think there's a fine line between wanting to show not only how certain people, different people would react differently to the events, but also how it would be taken to some extremes. So I think that there's a that that is something the show should do, and I think that the show is not the show that it is if it doesn't do that because this is a show that has shown how multiple people react in multiple ways depending on their lens. We've talked a ton about that uh, in, in in terms of how they see the events. Uh, do they strengthen their faith? Do they abandon it? And so forth and so on. So I think it's important to show the guilty remnant. That said, it took up a ton of time in season one, and you know I think a lot of people were upset with that. And then we get it back in season two and we find out, like, okay, whether we realize it or not, the simmering negative story of this whole season has been about the guilty remnant. And that, I can see that if you're really anti-guilty remnant frustrating people. The thing is, I think what people really loved about the second season was all the Kevin and Patty stuff. And you can't think about Patty without thinking about her as the guilty remnant leader. So I think people need to focus on what they liked about that story and not the negatives about it. Right. I mean, one thing that we have been saying throughout (laughs) season two is every episode seems to be just like building and building and building and getting better and better and better. And I will say this was not better than International Assassin, but how could you be? No, and I think it's tough because this is the ninth episode. The ninth episode is season one that Garvey's at their best. Probably the best episode of season one. Certainly one of the three best. It took a unique kind of perspective to look at the events before the departure uh, and it really kind of centered the characters in a way that they hadn't been able to do in the previous eight episodes. So I think that you've got the penultimate episode or the broken pencil ultimate episode. Uh, I think it's difficult uh, to kind of meet the same thing that you met. But we already had a huge episode like that in episode eight. So I think it is tough. I, I, is it frustrating to some viewers that we didn't get any more clarity on the Kevin storyline that we didn't see Kevin talking to Michael. I think that I can understand why that didn't that why that frustrated people and why they maybe would have preferred that be the last scene of the episode uh, rather than kind of what we got. 
um, which is Evie kind of showing up. But I, I think that the way that it played out was the right way. I wish there were two episodes left instead of one, uh, but it is what it is. It uh, is. We're gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna feed right into what's happening with this story now. Yeah. Uh, in the in the final episode. Well, so so you know we, we've got a 75 minute finale on our hands, uh, but one of the things that we've been doing this season is telling stories from fixed perspectives, and you know you'll see characters who have perspectives in other episodes, um, but you don't. You don't see things from their point of view. And that's going to play a lot into this finale, unless we're getting, you know, what, what sometimes would happen on Lost is you get everybody's perspective, uh, you know, in these finales, where you would see things from a lot of different points of view. Um, is that going to happen here with The Leftovers, where we're going to get to see things from the Murphy's perspective, from the Garvey's perspective, from Meg's perspective, from Matt's perspective, or are we only getting a few fixed viewpoints? And stemming from that... That's going to feed into a lot of how we get certain answers. Like if we don't, if we don't go inside of Kevin's head again, which I would not be surprised if we don't, it's going to be hard to get a lot of those Kevin Garvey answers that we really want. And I think that we're going to be left hanging on a lot of that stuff. I think it's possible that we could be looking at this episode purely through a Murphy perspective, for instance, uh, or or maybe even Matt because you need somebody on the ground uh, at the at the park outside of Jarden. Um, so I think that that is going to you know that's going to play a role in how this episode episode shakes out and i don't know I, I don't know i don't know i don't know where i'm going with it other than to say that i think that a lot of these questions a lot of these things that people are really really interested in and really want these answers on i don't know i don't know how we're getting them all there's a lot up in the air right now and probably only a couple of perspectives to tell this story yeah what's rough is that you know there was a lot of like when kevin came back uh with the handprint it's like oh my god what's gonna happen now john going to go nuts on Kevin. And I think a lot of people thought that was the confrontation towards which we were building and that maybe something deus ex machina would happen. Uh, and that sounds like what we're going to get is that I don't think John's going to kill Kevin uh, and then see that the, his daughter is still alive. That could happen, but I really don't see that being what happens ultimately uh, in this season. So I do think it takes the air out of that a little bit yeah. um, that we, you know, we're not going to have this great confrontation between John and Kevin, which defines the season I, or that, you know, Kevin comes back having changed and is able to, breakthrough with John. I don't think that's going to happen because it seems to me that the key moment of the, the final episode is going to be when the girls reveal themselves on the bridge. But, you know, I, I think that it's interesting because we had a great comment from Geek Furious on our post-show recaps page that said, I've read several theories and feel they may all have some validity, but in the end, I still believe Lindelof will surprise us. I can see the girls hanging from the bridge, but wouldn't them appearing validate everything the people in the city believe? That their town is special. Wouldn't that go against Meg's plan? Granted, I say that not knowing her end games. I can see the girls setting off explosives inside Miracle. Perhaps they, because they are believed gone for good, no one would suspect them as the suicide bombers and be unable to tie it back. And on and on and on. Geek Furious kind of throws all these theories out. But ultimately, I agree with that kind of belief is that Lindelof will surprise us. And I think that you're right. We have limited perspectives that we can tell this story from. But I think in the end, it won't be. It'll be a little bit of what we all expect, and it'll be told in a way that we maybe don't expect, or that will end probably in more of an emotional place. There is also the question uh, from Pablo at Post Show Recaps here. I wonder what the connection with the prehistoric bit in the first episode of the season. Right. If it is the last episode, it must be connected somehow. Any theories? Now we've talked a lot about how, at least nominally, that's connected to the way people might invent kind of theories about things that happen that they can't explain. Um, and we saw it's called the orphans well, and that may well be related to the orphan that was left by the mother who died from the snake bite. Uh, so that's entirely possible that we've already seen the connections and they're just 
it's not that overt. But do you think there's going to be a more overt connection? Um, I think it's possible. I think that maybe we could get some sort of epilogue that mirrors back uh, the cavewoman scene. I think we could see something like that. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how that's going to play into it. I think, you know, is there something metaphorically? Like, let's say that Meg is actually pregnant. Is there going to be some Meg scene that is, you know, she's not going to have a baby because she's not that pregnant, but is there going to be some sort of thing that's sort of similar to, to the cavewoman scene at the beginning of the season? I'm not really sure. Um, but I think that that's absolutely in play. Something with the well, something with, with the cavewoman, something with the cave in. Uh, I think that that is all still in play and would certainly help to bookend this, uh, this fantastic season yeah and like your eye the only reason i bring it up is you're saying we don't have a ton of time to dispense with all these things and that's a thing that we may not dispense with in my opinion i think we you know while i agree with you that we could see something um it it would be interesting it would be ballsy it would be gutsy but that's certainly in line with what damon has done damon lindelhoff has done throughout the course of this season gutsy ballsy things uh that really don't all ultimately right away make sense and that really have to be broken down so we could see it come back we may not i can see it being the kind of thing that we don't see come back so i think that's really interesting i did have a question for you josh yeah about things that lindelof has done or not done they've towed the line very much between man of science man of faith yeah you know whatever isaac in this episode all right your head is exactly where mine is because i was about to bring this up he knows about the walnuts he, he knows, knows about, about the, the walnuts and the salad. Now, is this kind of this, the, the belief that well, you can believe in supernatural or not believe in supernatural and there maybe still is room for people to have psychic powers in a world that isn't you know, totally populated by the supernatural and where there's not a supernatural explanation for everything? There could still be psychic powers. What's your take on this? It's – you know, a lot of people are taking this as the firmest proof yet that supernatural stuff exists in the universe of the leftovers. How else does Isaac know about the walnuts? Yeah, he could have called the restaurant, done some digging. He could have found out, but that assumes he knows that Meg is coming. Um, you know, Meg could show up spontaneously and Isaac could be like, oh, just give me a second. I got to go do a thing real quick. And then he could do like, you know, his 10 minute research process. Who knows? Like if, if you really want to want to drill down and expand the thing and if you want to hang on to your belief of uh, man of science versus man of faith, uh, you could do it you could do it it certainly is easier to accept um accept it at face value that isaac knows something you know there's something more special about isaac on on this show than say the psychic from lost like this seems to be a guy who actually does seem to have some ability or the psychic from psych or the psychic from psych i don't know i'm not a psych guy were you a psych oh, guy i was a psych guy okay. yeah, i love psych so, so the psychic on psych was no good I mean, it's established in the first episode that he's not a psychic. He's just a guy with observational powers who pretends to be a psychic. Right. So who knows? I mean, I think that a lot of people are taking the Isaac thing as like a declaration of the supernatural. And, um, you know, I think that there's still some wiggle room there. Uh, I think that there is a pretty firm argument for the supernatural through Isaac in that. Um, and I, I don't know what to take away from that because I do think that the, that the line has been so blurred throughout this series. And that's what really draws me to it, that there's possible explanations everywhere you look that there's no yeah. one hard and fast answer but what's your take do you think that well this- i mean I, I i like to think that you can believe in in people possessing kind of extra sight or psychic sight without believing you know that uh, god created the world in seven days and it's six thousand years old like believing that psychics exist does not l- lend itself to a specific creed or religion 
uh, or a set of beliefs. I mean, you can, you can live in a world where maybe some people have uh, a lens that allows them to see the world slightly differently than you, and maybe in a way that you can't explain, but that probably could have a scientific explanation. A lot of people believe that people born with psychic powers are born with like the placenta over their eyes, and they call it behind the veil or whatever. And when you're born behind the veil, that you have the power of second sight. And that's a, a, a hokum scientific explanation for it. But there could be a deeper scientific explanation that we don't know about. So just because someone has psychic powers doesn't mean that all religions are true, that everything that happens has a religious reason or a God reason. So I think you can still have psychics exist in a world uh, where science is kind of the predominant force. Uh, so I don't think that it establishes one way or the other which answers are correct. But I do think that it establishes that there are things that happen in the world besides the Great Departure, obviously, that you can't explain scientifically and that you do have to take on faith. And that, yeah, if we do some deeper digging on Isaac, maybe we could sniff it out. But maybe we couldn't. And maybe we couldn't explain it. And we would have to take it on faith. And that seeing the world through a lens where science only exists is going to make you just as myopic as seeing a lens through seeing the world through a lens where only religion exists so or only faith exists. So... I think that that's the ultimate takeaway. Laura Maria Olson also asked us on post-show recaps, if the girls are alive, does this prove that Kevin's world yep. was real yep. uh, since they weren't there? Uh, real, I, I think in this case, meaning does this prove that Kevin was really on a spiritual journey where his purgatory was filled with half-dead or real dead people instead of you know the girls who weren't there because they weren't dead? Look at you just getting to all my talking points because this is exactly exactly the thing I wanted to get to. I know. When you podcast with someone for a while, you start to cycle. Yeah, very much. Um, So, so I wanted to bring this up and and talk about it from a different perspective, which is, um, you know, yeah, they weren't in the dream, and we we had wondered about that, or you know, if it's a if it's another world or anything like that. The the world of international assassin. The girls were not there, unless you want to assign the the three nooses to them, uh, which I'm guessing we probably do want to assign that, whether that's literally or just metaphorically um i i'd rather i'd rather talk about it from the perspective of patty in orange sticker uh you know several episodes earlier when kevin finally acknowledges patty and patty starts talking to him and he's talking back and she kind of blows his mind with the whole you don't really love your family thing and she concludes their little chat by saying this this is verbatim what she says apologies for the s-bomb Oh, since you didn't seem to give a shit enough to ask me, I'll tell you. They vanished. The girls. Drove right by in their car, listening to their music. Not a worry in the world. Then poof, gone. Mama was right. Things are going to change indeed. And then she proceeds to Rickroll. Um, so those are her words. And a lot of people are saying, well, Evie's back. Evie's here. Evie didn't suddenly depart. Did Patty get it wrong? And if Patty got it wrong, does that mean she's not this divine entity? And she is just a figment of Kevin's imagination. Um, I think that there is a lot more, a lot more wiggle room in this, in the language, in the dialogue that Patty says here that doesn't really firmly ground it as it had to be a departure. The way that she's talking about how they vanished the girls, they drove right off, not a worry in the world, and poof, gone, could still apply to these, to these girls who were driving. Uh, maybe they were listening to their music, maybe that, maybe not, that's one thing that, that probably takes away from it, but, they might not have had a worry in the world because they knew exactly what they were doing, and then poof, they were gone, you know, by their own volition. So I don't take this as Patty definitely hardcore saying they departed. She never says they departed. Um, those words are not used. Yeah, they're not. And, and it's, you know, it is interesting because, again, 
her specific words don't really cut one way or the other. So um, does that prove Patty was in Kevin's head or prove Patty was a ghost? I don't think it does either way. Um, I think that it's uh, – and, that, you know, knowing what Patty's doing, she rickrolls him right after, as you said. She could very well have been trolling Kevin. Like we just don't know uh, what was really going on if she was real. And if she's in Kevin's head, Kevin's probably assuming the worst. So I think it is fascinating and interesting to look at it from that perspective. And the fact that they weren't there in purgatory, I don't think it means that they weren't dead if you want to look at it from the the man of faith perspective and that Kevin was really on a spiritual journey uh, that had nothing to do with any kind of drugs and he was dead uh, and he came back. Um, you know, if they were dead uh, and they were departed or whatever, it doesn't mean they would be in his purgatory world, which clearly was a hotel full of a lot of people, including Mary, like we talked about, and, and including Neil and, and others. But it wasn't full of every person that ever died. Uh, so just because they're not there doesn't mean that they that they weren't dead or that they weren't departed, uh, which we find out, of course, they weren't. But if they hadn't been there and we never saw them again, I don't think that would have proved that they didn't depart or die uh, because not everyone in the world was there. So I think it's interesting. I think it's uh, I think it just feeds into the debate more. I think that they, they did a great job of kind of connecting the dots there uh, and making it kind of work either way, as you're pointing out with the scene with Patty. Right. Um, anything else from this episode that we haven't touched on or anything else from the, I mean, listen, we said 69 questions and comments on the posterrecaps.com page when we started recording this thing. I'm now looking, there's 80. Uh, yeah. so there's a lot, a lot to filter through and there's an awesome conversation that's happening over there. Is there anything else from there that you want to cherry pick before we sign out? Well, I mean, I, I do think that, um, I do think that that's, uh, that it's interesting, um, that, you know, uh, we got the, the kind of kind of scene with Meg and Evie at the beginning and the, the crickets. I, I'm not sure 100% who observed it on our page, um, but I thought it was a really good observation that Evie may have been kind of uh, broken, if you will, um, because of what she sees uh, constantly in Miracle. That, uh, you know, I think this was Tar Sentinel. Um, although Evie lived in Miracle where no departure happened, she was just as broken as everyone else because she kept looking at all the brokenhearted people visiting the town to feel better, but only end up disappointed and depressed, and that that made her more susceptible to join the guilty remnant. I think that that's a really good observation about Evie, that it isn't just that, you know, she's a teenager and all teenagers in this world got dark. It's that if you live in Miracle, you, you see a lot of broken people coming through every day. Right. We see kind of a great, I thought it was a really smart way to do what we've already kind of done in this season. We see we see um, Liv Tyler and her fiance taking the uh, guided audio tour in the in the golf cart and, and seeing the kind of ground gas explosion leading to manholes being blown off. I think there was a gas explosion in Mapleton on ten fourteen, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when Kevin was kind of running around right before the departure happened. I think there was a major gas explosion on that day in Mapleton. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting kind of fact. Um, I thought that was you know a great way to look at Miracle through the outsider eyes, but seeing it that way through Evie's eyes and seeing all the broken people that come in, I think that you could look at it. Uh, she and Michael have different perspectives. Michael wants to work with these pilgrims. He wants them to come to his church. He wants to try to provide them salvation and a little bit of what they're seeking. Evie wants to give them carrots and just make sure that they don't cry and tell them jokes uh, and do it her way, uh, which she knows no one ever finds solution or salvation. I think that bodes really poorly for Nora because, of course, Nora and Kevin were seemingly coming to Miracle because they felt it would be this you know, this is a perfect kind of establishment of there's no geographical solution. Right. Uh, if you're trying to move to cure your depression or whatever. Uh, so I thought that that was great. Uh, the weight in the water references that keep coming up were really pretty funny. I 
I thought uh, because of all the water stuff that we've had, especially in the last episode, uh, don't drink the water and all those things. Um, we didn't really talk about it too much. What did you feel? How did you feel about the Liv Tyler scene with her kind of facing down with the guilty remnant? Uh, they clearly didn't feel like she's on board with all their plans uh, and they're not happy with her and she's pushing back. Um, I, do you find it interesting that they aren't more kind of in control of her? Uh, is this something that they're okay with happening? Her kind of freelancing a little bit. I mean, wouldn't they have cracked down on her at some point or is it something I don't, I don't remember who observed this, but there was a comment on our page about how, what is, is this a kind of a, um, it was rhythm of wisdom. Uh, anyone notice how becoming the head of the Mapleton Guilty Remnant chapter seems to make you one tough cookie? Patty seemed to have transformed for the worse or better through her Guilty Remnant leadership, and so did Meg. Maybe Lori would have too uh, had she uh, not exited after the fire. Um, is that an example of power corrupting those who claim to lead a higher, supposedly noble cause? I'm just wondering with Meg and Lori kind of possibly coming into kind of conflict here in this final episode uh is meg is going is laurie going to be able to win the day is, is everything going to be kind of called off or would you see that as being anticlimactic and not really in keeping with what we should expect well i mean i think that the plan is going to go into motion whether it is fully realized or not is is the other question i think to your question about um is is the guilty remnant okay with meg freelancing i would say a big fat nope i don't think so i don't i don't think that they're happy with the way that meg is acting but i think that there's also a power vacuum in the Mapleton Guilty Remnant chapter, you know, Patty offs herself. The plan is presumably for Lori to step up and take control after that, but Lori departs the, the Guilty Remnant, um, and it leaves really like who's going to be who's going to be in control. Gladys is gone. There's really no one. Um, and I mean, maybe it could have been a red shirt. They could have you know Nikki and Paolo this thing, um, <laughs> but there's there's really nobody that that we know of that could step up and be there. And so Meg is this person that was a highly attractive candidate for the Guilty Remnant to begin with. Um, she is relentless she is relentlessly relentless um so she's an attractive person to put in that leadership spot and i just don't know if they've got anyone else who could step up but i think that these there's a reason why this meeting is happening where it's like well we're hearing these rumors you've got to do what we're telling you to do and she's being defiant but she's being you know passively defiant you know she's she's lying to them she's being deceitful she's not telling them the truth and she's doing it all with a smile and a yes ma'am yes sir so i i just i feel like there's probably they don't they don't have a great plan in place to take her off of the guilty remnant to take her out they don't know who would step up and be in charge of mapleton so i think that they're just kind of in a sticky situation themselves and i think that they don't know how to get meg out of their hair uh i think that that's really really the problem but no i don't think that the guilty remnant is going to like what meg is going to do at all because this is going to fall on the guilty remnant and you know we have seen in the past, not much this season, but we've seen in season one um, that like the ATF got expanded to include its purview uh, as like cults and bringing down the guilty yeah. remnant. And we've seen, yeah. you know, we've seen not a ton of it on the show, but we have seen that there is, you know, organized uh, task forces to deal with groups like the guilty remnant. And if Meg is able to get away or even begin to get away with what she has planned for Miracle, you got to imagine there is going to be a very fierce 
crackdown on the guilty remnant nationwide, probably. And that could be, you know, a, a focus of season three if season three comes to pass. Yeah. Um, you know, really just see like, Kevin being an international assassin for real. Oh, yeah. You never know. You never know. Um, <laughs> two, two quick questions. Yeah. Uh, and, and we can dispense with them fairly quickly. One, uh, if the if the ending is the three girls hanging themselves on the bridge, too dark for you? Too uh, dark for the show? It's really Too dark for everyone? It's really dark. Um, so yeah, I mean, we had a great comment uh, from uh, Trent C. that said, I think it was Trent C. that basically said, if, if the, it shows, if it ends with them hanging themselves, we're going to need a hug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take my pain away. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the show has been very grim dark in the past, and that would be about as grim dark as it's gotten. Um, so is it possible? A million percent it's possible. It's absolutely possible that that's where we're going. Um, too dark? I mean, this has been a season that has, you know, shown us some levity and some lightness in some of these characters. Not all the time, and very often we are still seeing that these are broken individuals, but tonally there has been something a little bit brighter. Like there's just, you know, beams of sunlight that do break through every now and then on this show, and I've really loved that about season two. So I hope that there isn't something that is just like that twisted, that low to the ground. But if they pull it off well, you know, I'll, I'll be on Sunday night, you know, applauding the move. It really depends on execution. Uh, Speaking no, no of execution, yeah. this is kind of the final question. I thought it was a great observation by Ryan Oakley. He said his, his favorite theory regarding the four costumes from last week is how Kevin could choose to deal with Patty. He could forgive her. That's the priest costume. He could side with her. That's the guilty remnant costume. He could deal with her lawfully, the policeman, or he could kill her unlawfully, the assassin. Um, and I think that I, I, I wanted to highlight that because to me, I think that there's shades of all those things in what happened with Kevin and Patty last week. He does forgive her kind of at the bottom of the well when he really sees her pain and understands why it happened. And he's ready to jump down there and take care of their, take care of her. He sides with her when he says why he smokes and when he's kind of on board with that. Uh, he does kind of deal with her lawfully when he's sort of ready to kind of take her in and, uh, you know, maybe kind of, uh, deal with her in a, in a more, or indirect way, uh, and then he, he obviously does kill her um, and kills her as the senator in the in the hotel room more than anything. Right, and so I think that that's an interesting observation more than just Kevin had a choose your own adventure. Those four kind of um, characteristics of Kevin, uh, Kevin the merciful, uh, Kevin the lawman, Kevin the lawbreaker, uh, and Kevin the kind of empathetic Kevin are, are, I think, present in Kevin throughout. And I think that maybe present in all of us. And I think that that's a, a great observation on that last episode that we didn't really uh, break down fully uh, in that in that podcast. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. nothing, nothing more to add to that. I think that's really good. Anything else from you? I'm, yeah. I'm good. I've got, I've, got, I've got two more. I've got one from, from Pablo again. Pablo said, did they mention something about the dogs in this episode? I didn't really get that. I'm still curious about the identity of the guy who was hunting the dogs in season one. The BBA. The BBA. Dean. Dean. Um, so let's take that in two parts. Um, there is mention of Meg, like, but the bus incident was too far already. She had done something with dogs. Right. What was your take? Yeah, we don't. I don't really know what she did with dogs. Did she kill dogs? Did she hang them? Um, you know, dogs were such a prevalent thing throughout the first season. In that first episode, we see Dean shooting them uh, and Kevin kind of getting on board with that. We know that certain dogs were feral if they witnessed a departure, especially. Um, they might have gone feral. Um, certain dogs were still kept as pets. Kevin's been without his dog throughout this season. We have the scene with Tommy seeing the dog get abandoned in this episode, which I thought was really meant to more directly represent Tommy. Tommy's own abandonment issues uh, and feeling kind of like he'd been left out in the cold uh, more than anything um, and just kind of playing into Tommy's depression. 
but I don't know what Meg did with the dogs. What do you think? Well, I don't know what she did with the dogs either, but I think that there is one thing that we need to kind of acknowledge, which is this season, you know, it withheld a lot of the guilty remnant from us so that it could make this reveal in episode nine as powerful as it was. One thing that they have kept away from us, but they did establish early on is that the pets, the animals that are coming through Miracle need to be in isolation for, I don't remember exactly 60 days, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so we know that Meg has a history with dogs. We know that there is a big, you know, room or rooms filled with dogs who are in isolation just waiting to be opened. Is whatever she's about to do, is it going to involve dogs somehow? Is Chekhov's dog pound about to come into play? Uh, so I would, I would keep an eye on that on Sunday yeah. night. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a good possibility. We haven't been back to that set. That dog represents a lot to Kevin. Um, is John Murphy going to? Go kill the dog uh, because he's angry at Kevin. Is somebody else going inter- to interject there? Is Meg going to free them all? We don't know how many people were waiting on their dogs to be quarantined either because we get the impression that people don't get to enter into Miracle to live there that often. So how many dogs are even in there? What that all looks like? I guess we'll find out. Yeah, guess we'll find out. Or maybe we won't. You know, or Maybe it, we won't. It right. could just be a nothing, but it could be yep. a something as well. And then as for Dean, the BBA, uh, do you feel like we'll ever get that guy back on the show? Or are we done with that? Michael Gaston, is that that guy's name? That's his name. Um, I don't know. I, I, there was a lot of speculation in season one that he was sort of the Patty type character, that he was a kind of a head ghost for Kevin. I think we saw him interact with others in a way that, that made it clear that he wasn't that kind of person. Certainly seemed so. Yeah. But then he did just disappear. Now we haven't seen the mayor from Mapleton. Uh, we haven't seen, you know, some of these other characters, the frost twins, um, uh, Amy, uh, uh, Jill's friend. We haven't seen them, these season one characters in season two. Uh, so we're gone from Mapleton. We haven't seen Dean. I don't, think he would join the guilty remnant he seemed to be reacting to the events in a much different way um could we see him in a season three possibly are we going to see him in this next episode i doubt it um you know he couldn't be in le- he might not be in league with the guilty remnant but he could be in league with the meg remnant so. well that's true he could yeah. because he's much more of a violent kind of guy and if there's some sort of dog link between the two of them Oh my gosh, a dog link? Yeah, a dog link could be possible. Um, all right. And then one other thing that I think, uh, we ought to, we ought to talk about is this is a question from Darren C. Any chance you'll do a live show after the finale considering there's no more of The Walking Dead? Uh, you want to give that the thumbs up? Should we give that the thumbs up? Uh, is this the Fargo podcast or? No, stop, stop. It's a different context in different, different shows. Different context. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. So we're going to do a live show after the leftovers season two finale. Hopefully not series finale. We'll do a podcast about 15 minutes after the episode ends. I do believe it's a 75 minute episode. So I would guess we would be on the air around 10 30 PM Eastern. We'll take your questions live. We'll give you our live reactions to the episode. And then later in the week, we'll break down the episode in even more detail. Cause I'm sure there's going to be a ton to chew so we'll give you two leftovers podcasts next week one live right after the episode so clear your plans for sunday night be on board we'll be there it'll be a good time do i have to like cut my hair and shave and all that no your hair is your hair is luscious i love it so please keep it the way it is and i also will not be shaving my neard so i don't expect you to shave it's fantastic all right you know we're both going to be wearing all white um maybe we could. I guess it depends on if the girls are hanged or not. Yeah, how about that? How about we see how the guilty remnant looks at the end of this episode, and then we can make a judgment. Then we can make our judgment about whose side we're on. Yeah, maybe we could dress... How about this? Let's adorn ourselves accordingly after uh, after we know ourselves after this finale. That's what we'll do. Okay. Sounds great. But I'll, but I'll dress up. I'll dress up. I'll find I, something. I encourage everyone to do the same. Okay, sounds good. All right, Antonio, uh, hashtag for this one. You got anything that comes to mind? Oh, my gosh. Nothing comes to mind. I've we talked two. about a lot. I've got what do you two. Got? Uh, one would be hashtag Sith Lord Meg is an easy one, and then... <laughs> 
the more characters, uh, but probably funnier one is hashtag Broken Pencil Ultimate. Uh, yeah, Broken Pencil Ultimate. Uh, or Sith Lord Meg, either one. Either Let us one. Know. Yeah, fire that to at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. I'm at Round Howard. Uh, really great podcast this week, Antonio. And again, thanks all of you guys who've been so active on PushingRecaps.com. This is really, really cool to see. Really, I'm hoping that we did generate a few more Leftovers fans. That would be really awesome. So if, you, if you're listening to this podcast and you're brand new to the game, let us know. We would love to hear that. That would, that would just put a big smile on my face for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm, we're really thankful for those who did catch up. But, but I think we did you a favor by putting this show in your life, if I might say so. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a great show. It's a great really show, is. and I'm really happy that a lot of people are picking up on it now, or more people are picking up on it anyway. Um, subscribe to what we're doing at Post Show Recaps, postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. And if you want the leftovers specific stuff, go to postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes, and you can listen to all the leftovers things that we've done before. If you're a big fan of the show, if you love the show, if you want to recruit people like the Guilty Remnant to our cause, send them that uh, leftovers podcast for, for newcomers. It's designed for them. If you've got people in your family, people in your lives that you really want to convert to the leftovers, let us do the talking. It's an hour-long podcast. If they've got the time to listen to it, hopefully we'll pique their interest. If not, whatever. Uh, But give it a shot. I think it'll work. Yeah, and I think that, like I said, and I didn't mean to sound so smug, but like, it can only bring good things into people's lives, I think, watching this show. Even though it's dark and even though it can be depressing at times, it's a great television show. So you're doing people a favor, I think, by recommending this show. I would hope that you think that uh, because we think that for sure. And we think it's a show that people if they give it a real kind of chance will really love and really appreciate and hopefully if you're listening to this you feel the same way uh and you feel the need to share it because i think buzz around this show look the walking dead finale was this week so the ratings are not going to be good uh but next week's finale the ratings could be higher than anything this season i'm very hopeful that will be the case i think a a strong showing in the finale will be a great kind of feather in the cap uh, for the leftovers when it comes to getting a season three and beyond uh let's hope so let's hope so because there's a lot in the air and i can't imagine it's all getting resolved in season two uh but maybe it's possible maybe 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 maybe. um so i'm very excited i know you're excited antonio and hopefully you guys are all excited as well we will talk to you on sunday night and then we'll talk to you again later next week two podcasts about the leftovers finale in season two overall really excited about it antonio i'll talk to you soon cheers Get higher, baby. They don't ever count down. Three, four.